Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Talking Country with Brad and Chancy. Man, it's a beautiful day today in Texas. Good morning, Brad. Yes, it is. We had a, some pretty sloppy last few days, but today's going to maybe dry out a little bit. Well, we didn't get much, that much rain, but it's going to be a nice, pretty day today. We got a good three-tenths. Uh, we put our fertilizer on our wheat a couple weeks ago. It wasn't cheap to do, but man, we got it out there. We got the perfect rain on it. Everything's starting to green up a little bit today. Boy, I tell you what, it's getting to be that time of the year. Yes, hopefully we get some more rains too, because we're dry right now. I mean, we don't have any deep soil moisture. We're just kind of getting those little rains, kind of green things up, but we're going to need some deep soil moisture rains here pretty soon. I think we're supposed to be in the 80s by the end of the week here, so it's not going to take long to dry out that little bit of a shower we got, but maybe, just maybe. It'll stay dry enough for us to get our corn planted. Yeah. All the grain markets are going crazy right now with all the stuff going on overseas. Uh, oil markets are going crazy right now. Sure. A lot of un- through the roof. Yes, a lot of uncertainty right now in the world as to what's going to happen next. One thing we do have to be doing in order to support all this is paying our taxes. <laughs> yes, we do. Tax season is coming around real soon, actually. It is indeed. And so today... Uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit about ag exemptions that you could get on your property, uh, which is, nowadays is becoming more and more important. Uh, a lot of inflation going on right now with property values, especially in our area of Central Texas. Um, a lot of people paying a lot of money for property. And if you lose your ag exemption, you're going to be into some money. Yes, absolutely. And as Brad was saying, so many people are moving in here, and like a lot of them are not necessarily making money or trying to use their land to make a living like so much of our you know our ancestors did they're doing it and they're using it for recreation uh for hunting or different purposes and uh in texas specifically we have we can we always call it an ag exemption or a wildlife exemption but that's really kind of a bad bad term for it. it's actually a ag appraisal or a wildlife appraisal and so while that means like open space lands that have been traditionally farmed or ranched or whatever means it was if they were just open spaces well they are taxed they have a special valuation they're taxed on uh not the market value of the land they're taxed on the productivity of the land you still have a market appraisal but you also have an ag appraisal of how much that land produced what how much you think you could have profited off of that and still afford the taxes on it yes yes so yeah you still got your market value but then you've got your appraised your wildlife or your ag valuation and they're usually they're, well there always is very very a lot of difference between those two and what it's trying to do is keep stuff in open space like we say you know i mean our ag lands in texas are the most important i mean they produce our food or fiber i mean they're everything help clean our water help you know help her clean our air so we don't want everything in concrete you know but at the same time so many of our producers out there for lack of a better word are land rich and money poor and um this allows them because if they had to pay taxes based on their market value, they'd go right out of business. It's just that simple. Oh, absolutely. Right? If you've ever looked Unless at that. Unless you're a millionaire or, you know, have a lot of money. If you've looked at that value, it's pretty high. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would take a good part of your salary to pay your taxes on your on, on 100, issued even on 10 acres now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Most people couldn't afford it. No, absolutely. And so, luckily, there is this option of this ag. And now, even starting, I guess, in 1995, yeah, you have you could actually put your place into a, a wildlife exemption, which is a subcategory of this ag exemption. Yes, yeah. So, like as Bradley said, so 
for years we'd always had this Aggies, you know, or Ag appraisal, and then also that applies to timberlands too. Like if you're, you know, in east of here, you've got pine trees or whatever. So you're basically trying to make money with your land. Well, in 1995, I think in Texas specifically, we started getting a lot of interest in white-tailed deer in the mid 90s, and wildlife management started really kind of gearing up and taking off you know landowners were starting to think about a lot well the legislature in 1995 a bill originated in the house of representatives and that bill was called house bill 1358 and it called an amendment to the texas constitution that added wildlife management to the list of qualifying agricultural practices this is in 1995 that was in 1995 so it's not like people call it a wildlife exemption but it's actually a category you still got your open space 1d1 ag appraisal and this is just category underneath like you could get an ag appraisal for beekeeping or for vineyards you know winemaking stuff like that Uh, running cattle cutting hay i mean there's a you know a paragraph you know a page long of all the different things that you know well so under ag use and so add this ag exemption to that page long list of all the great things that came in the 90s too what a time to be alive <laughs> yes yeah now you get a tax break for for raising deer on your place you know yeah if you, for human use you know or something like that it, as long as you manage for them and we're going to go into a little bit more detail about that how it applies specifically for texas and then kind of specifically for our region but uh most of the time when a landowner changes from like a more traditional agricultural use such as cattle production to wildlife management ag use the landowner must make an application to the appraisal district basically go make an application to the the chief appraiser at the cad between january 1st and april 30th of the year in which the owner wants to implement the change so basically if you're thinking about moving from ag to wildlife this year you've got between january 1st and april 31st to make that application to the cad you got to let them know that you're thinking about making this change almost how much time you have to get your taxes done pretty much so that's kind of the way i think about it too you know and so they they give you till april 30th to have it done and that's also once you if you've had wildlife exemption or i keep saying exemption but like i said it's a wildlife valuation on your land then you have an annual report and it's always due by april 30th as well so and just while i mentioned that if you decided for some reason you wanted to go out of wildlife and go back into ag use you can but you still have to let the chief appraiser know you got to let the county appraisal district know in the same time frame between january because you're changing use you're basically changing use from wildlife to ag or from ag to wildlife you can interchange but you need to let the let them know during that time period so any kind of changes to what you want to do with your property you have to let the appraisal district know i guess huh well if you're changing use mm-hmm. so say if you're going from ag to wildlife yes or if you're in wildlife it's like you know what i'm going to go back to ag use. and all this happens at your county appraisal office yes you let them know there's an application that if you've ever applied for ag use you remember you went down to the ag appraisal they gave you a 1d1 open space you know if you've never had a wildlife or an ag valuation that's the thing y'all you can't just go in and apply for wildlife you have to have ag use first once you have ag use then you can uh, change it over to wildlife but you can't just go in there clean slate and go to wildlife you have to get ag first if you have a an ag valuation on your place they come out every year and they, they send an appraiser out and they look at your property and see if you've built anything if you changed anything yeah if, usually in january the county appraisal district drive around see if you're maintaining your fences i guess running cattle cutting hay whatever whatever you say that you do and if they notice that hey by chance you haven't bailed any hay. The grass is getting old. It's all growing Fences up in mesquites. Down. It's growing up in trees. Doesn't look like that 
that Brad's doing anything with he's not producing any kind of agriculture stuff on this property. We need to kind of send him a letter saying, "Hey, you're about to lose this this ag ag valuation that I have on it." Likewise, you you could put it in this wildlife, but there's these different requirements that you have to have in order for it to fall into wildlife yes. too. You can't just say, "Okay, yeah, I'm not farming that anymore. I know it's covered in mesquites, but I'm doing that for my for the deer." Yes. You got to let the appraisal district know that, hey, that's what I'm doing out here. You're going to fill out the paperwork, and then you got to, and and you're going to have to meet these these four requirements in order for it to work for it to work fall underneath that program. I guess I would say. Yeah. So, like, say that scenario happens, and the landowner says, "Well, you know what? I don't have the money. I'm getting too old. Whatever." Reason my tractor else. broke down. So my cow died. Yeah, I'm tired of fighting floods and keep washing the fence out. You know, for whatever reason, it's just not. And that's another thing too. You don't have to put your whole property into wildlife. You can take a parcel or a piece or a certain amount of acreage, as long as you put it on the map and let them know. So, if that's something that you want to do, what you would do between January 1st and April 3rd is you would go to the appraisal district and you would apply for a change in land use. Now, the four requirements that that chief appraiser is going to look at, number one, to see if you even qualify to go to wildlife, there's four things that she's going to look at or he's going to look at. And the first one is going to be that property, it must have been qualified and appraised as open space land in the year prior to conversion. It had to have ag value. It had to have ag last year. Mm -hmm. Had to. If it didn't have it last year, then you can't just go right into it. it. had to be the previous year. And so a lot of people get in trouble with some of that stuff buying these subdivided places, huh? Well, yeah, because there's also a minimum requirement, stuff like that. And now the state has made where and we'll get into that. Um, but before we get in there, let's just finish these other four, these other three. So number one was had to be an ag the previous year, the year before. Number two, you're going to have to actively manage and sustain a breeding, migrating population of native animals and that's key native i think the exact wording is indigenous or something that just means native like you can't have a wildlife exemption and manage exotic deer it has to be native animals native deer native songbirds native butterflies whatever bees bees well but that would be a ag exemption oh that's true valuation. that goes away bees from the wildlife a type of livestock that's true because you you know you farm them just like cattle you know you milk them or not milk them, but think of their honey as milk, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, they're producing something. They're producing something they're producing that we a in product. turn sell. So, you know, it's no different than a, than a farmer out there raising a, a beef producer out there raising it to eat or a milk cow producer out there raising it for milk. Sure. Bees, the same thing. Uh, the third requirement would be that it has to be managed for human use. Basically, human need to get something out of it. And that this be, is a blanket term there. I mean, if you can't check so. that check in the box, you got problems. Yeah, I mean, what, the, you know, the chief appraiser is going to look, well, of course it's for human use because he's either going to hunt or he's going to bird watch with her. He's going to let the grandkids go out there or going to fish or whatever. You know, human use is very easy. It's a very easy requirement to fulfill. Okay. But it's also, I guess, more important if like an absentee landowner buys a piece of property that he doesn't go out to all the time just doesn't see it all the time he only goes out there you know two or three times a year or once a month or something you know you got to just prove that you're using this wildlife that you're managing for your own own use or somebody else's use it can't be like a hundred acre place that i buy as an investment somewhere it's like uh, say i'm living in a whole nother state and then all of a sudden this property is just sitting there Mm -hmm. and i'm saying it's wildlife but in all actuality like nobody's been on the place in yeah 10 years well that could be where that could be a problem i I guess maybe and i'm not saying that doesn't happen like 
people that want to develop or sell them is going to, going to sit on it. But they need to be showing that during that time, they're actively hunting it or they're leasing the land for other people or their grandkids are going out there. They're, they're using that land. You know, it's just not sitting there as an investment property that they do nothing with. Sure. Makes sense. Uh, the fourth requirement that you've got to have is you've got to have a wildlife management plan. And that's a big one. Yeah, this is a big one because most CADs, they want you when you apply for your application. Most of the ones I've dealt with, they want you to turn. And in by your CAD, Chancy means county appraisal district. Okay. So like this one's called Milam CAD, you know, or Lee CAD. I, and I'm sorry, but yeah, I'm talking about the appraisal pay, appraisal district. So most of the time, when you apply for that turnover to to change, they want you to have your wildlife management plan with you. And Texas Parks and Wildlife has a form that you can go online, print out fill out and the thing with the wildlife management plan you the landowner can set your goals and you can write the wildlife management plan or you know the state of texas has abolishes for every county um i can't think of the name for the one in milam county right now it used to be tim sigmund who i used to work with all the time but i think his name's uh, mr alcorn um but anyway every every county state in the state has their own wildlife biologist and you can contact them and they will write you one for free of charge, they'll help you and get help you with your land, help you with everything if they have time. You know, that's they're the kicker busy. right now. Most of the state biologists I know, and I used to be one. They got their head, you know, they're, they're struggling. They're you know struggling to keep their head above water. They well, really are. Yes, as um, so much property is changing hands in the state of Texas, and not many of them want to farm. Yes, who are buying the property or ranch. So. Uh, looking for wildlife exemptions and stuff they got to go to the to the guy and you hope that you're not too late on that because yeah. they're pretty backlogged because by this time if you're going to you know a state guy i'm not saying but if you're going to a state biologist right now at this time of year they probably got 20 people ahead of you so it's one of those things that you need to be thinking about you know years in or not years in advance but be thinking about prior to just switching over because if you don't write it yourself you're going to have to get somebody to write it because you have to have one you know but like i said you can write them yourself and you know i know lots of landowners that are master naturalists or whatever just just good outdoor people that do their research and they know their stuff you know and they can google search and find academia papers and watch and you know you could put one together actually but if you don't have time there's also private individuals that 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 will write you a plan as well well speaking of that chancy is one of those guys and he has a website it's a native tx wildlife.com okay so once again that's native and then tx for texas native tx wildlife.com where you could get his contact information and see some of the work he's done he's got uh pictures and everything of all the work that he's done over time and he could definitely help you write these different management plans so you, that you could qualify for this for this uh, wildlife valuation on your property yes and well thank you brad and that is true it's something i could certainly help out with but at the same time y'all don't um uh forget about your state biologist too i know money's tight for everybody else and you know i just have to mention there's competition out there there's other people and i mean a lot of these guys are my friends i went to school with them i know them so plateau land and wildlife is another one in the hill country that does that i think landmark is another one that does it as well so there's opportunities out there if you get because i tell you at this time of year everybody gets busy and so there's options, and you don't want the thing about it is, I'm talking to you landowners out there, you don't want to lose it. If you lose it, it's a nightmare, and it's a pain to get back. So whatever you do, if you can't get the state biologist to do it and save you some money and got to pay some, whatever you do, you don't want to lose your ag exemption. And while we're on the topic, if you do, even your, your, your ag valuation that you have for farming and ranching, if you lose that, it's going to take you seven years in order to get that thing back. You're going to pay full property taxes for seven years until you Well, could, five for sure. 
Yeah, because yeah, you got to show five, five out, out of seven, seven. years mm-hmm. that you've that you've done something to manage your yes your agricultural use on that property. So the way this works, y'all, is what Bradley was just saying. Say you lost it. Okay, now guess what? You lost it. Well, you've got to go back to the appraisal district between January first and April thirtieth and apply for open space, and then you have to. I think. I haven't done just straight ag and well. I think you have to apply. You apply that first year, but then you have to go by every year and say it. And then after you've done it for five years, then the appraisal district looks at it and says, okay, well, yeah, you grazed it properly. You cut hay properly. You did whatever properly. Yes, we'll approve you for ag use, open space ag use. You, that means you just paid property taxes at market value. For five for years. For five years, which – that's a lot of money, y'all. That and don't lose it. <laughs> if you buy a property that's probably that had an ag valuation, but it's been for sale for a couple of years and nothing's been done with it, mm-hmm. you're probably already two years behind the game. Maybe you could be because that's another thing too. So much of what's going on, you know, we're we're subdividing these bigger chunks of land and subdividing, them, and that's one of the things. Like too, one of the it's not a requirement when we talk about minimum acreages. You know, if it, it changes a little bit when you start subdividing land. Per county, per per area, you know, per, well, basically not per county, but per eco region. So the state's been divided into like different eco regions for the property tax concerns, like Blackland, Prairie, Post Oak, Savannah, Eastern Hill Country, or Edwards Plateau, that kind of stuff. Uh, the probably here's where we need to mention how many acres you even have to have for that. Well, that's the thing too. for this. Requ- it's while we're on this topic stuff. of requirements, if you're in ag use already and the property has not been subdivided, there is no minimum acreage. But how many minimum acres is it to get an ag valuation period? Well, I think it changes per county, but say Milam County and even like counties around here, most of them is around five to six. If you start getting less than five or six acres, even seven, you know they're going to start. I'm not going to say that you can't do it with cattle but they're going to start really looking at you they're going to be like okay you got five acres in your ag use you know they're 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 going to be looking at so that's where a lot of people in those smaller type acreages like from five to twenty they'll go bees they'll go you know an ag use in bees versus cattle or hay but i know uh a lot of the counties i deal with five is a good general rule five so you had five acres in your ag, then there's your grandfathered in. If you had, if the property hadn't been subdivided, it's been ag use for 20 years, grandpa had it in there, you had it, and now whatever, you can go right to wildlife. There's no problem. The kicker is if you have a piece of property that's been subdivided the previous year, the year before, then there's a minimum acreage. And that minimum acreage is based on a formula that state legislature puts out and basically – the county appraisal review board, who is a, I don't think they're elected, that they may be appointed or something, but the chief appraiser answers to the appraisal review board, and they set a percentage, you know, and the state legislature said that percentage has to be between 92 and 94% of that use, something like that. And in Milam County. For wildlife. Well, yeah, to, for the minimum acreage for wildlife, yeah. So when you do that in Milam County and Lee County, anywhere in the Post Oak Savannah and anywhere in the Blackland Prairie, that minimum acreage is 16.6. And the way that formula is you just take the acreage that you start with, subtract one, and then divide it back by the acreage you started with, and that percentage, as long as it's 94%, that's how you get. There. And for our area, it's 94%, which gives us 16.6 acres. If you go west of here, it's 20 acres, but it's 95%. They want it 95%. And that's for wildlife. That's to convert. If, if the property has been subdivided the previous year. I know that's confusing. So just say you brought a piece of property and it was subdivided and you bought the little parcel. If it's 10 acres, you can't put it into wildlife. Ever. 
No, not it. No, you oh, can okay. put it, but not that year. It only applies to that first year. So if you would have to put it in the ag or try to keep it in ag, if you bought it as ten acres, you got it ag exempt. Do whatever you can on your ten acres or five acres or whatever to keep it in ag. Yeah, whatever you can, whether it be that bees or whatever. And then once it's in ag, then technically the next year, then you could put it in wildlife. But it's just that first year, as far as I'm aware of. But don't you have to have 16 acres to be in wildlife? Only that first year if it's got subdivided before. Like I said, if grandfathered in, if it hadn't been subdivided. Okay, it doesn't matter if it's. Only subdivided the previous year. So that's something that just needs to be clarified because it is confusing. It's only a. As far as I know, and I'm pretty certain on this, it applies statewide. It's, that's not a county-per-county county thing. That is a statewide thing. It just applies that the previous year of you purchasing it. So if it's less than 16.6 acres and you're in the post oak savannah and the Blackland Prairie, then you need it to be, say it was 10 acres, then you need to put it in ag that year. Make sure you got it in ag. Keep it in ag for however long you want, but make sure you keep it in ag. And then you could, at a later date, move it into wildlife if you wanted to and i guess depending on how hurting your county is for road work or different Absolutely. kind of things that like that it does yes it. yes it, uh, they probably look at you a little harder if you got small acreage tight. yes yeah. and if you got small acreage you know they're gonna look at you a little harder and that's you know and they should really you know they need to make sure because uh it's a it's a substantial tax uh valuation it's a big difference very know? substantial so, mm-hmm Yes. And that's a lot of revenue that's not going to the schools or going to, you know, whatever, you know, that your property taxes go to. I know school and then the county taxes and stuff, but that's a lot of chunk of money. And so as appraisal districts and counties get crunched for money, they probably start keeping a more closer eye on property exchanges and, and that. Well, I know they do. And so once you actually meet these requirements and they say, okay, Chancy, I'll give you the, the wildlife exemption on this. Okay, you could you could have it, but there's seven practices, management practices that you're going to have to put a little check in the box beside. Well, how many? Three out of these seven, I guess that we're yes, about to mention every year. So the state, and this this comes from state, y'all, and Parks and Wildlife. So the state of Texas has put out together wildlife management practices that are applicable to every property, and and, and in Texas in general, y'all. I hate to say you know always or never, but in general. There's very, very little lands in Texas that don't require some form of management to keep them in some suitable state of, of wildlife production, depending on what your goals are for species. Otherwise, it's just going to grow up. It's going to get mess. too thick or it gets too rank. It gets too decadent. You know, I mean, it needs usually about the only thing I can even think of that probably is self-sustaining is a very mature bottomland hardwood forest. You know, big old mature floodplain. They kind of, that system kind of, it's at climax and it's kind of taking care of its own self, you know. Uh, but other than that, and quite honestly, we probably have very, very little mature bottomland hardwood forest left in the county uh, or in Blackland Prairie for sure. So the state's put seven practices out there. And the requirement is that a landowner has to do three out of the seven every year to qualify that they're using it for quote unquote wildlife use. So I'm guessing there's a form and it's got these things on it. Yes, there's a form. That, Did every year you fill this form out? Yep, and it, if you've done it, it's the own Parks and Wildlife template. It's a form, and you can get it from your county appraisal district or from Parks and Wildlife. It's a form. It's a checkbox, you know. What you're doing, y'all, is you're trying to prove. We're, we're not prove. You're justifying what you do. You're keeping track of your work, number one. And I tell all my landowners, like, look, especially the first year, put a 
get you a little envelope, or get you a folder, put all your receipts in there, keep documenting everything, take pictures. I love pictures, and county appraisal districts love pictures. It's been my experience when I do one. They even look at you pretty hard that first year, and then if you got all your ducks in a row, they're like, guys taking care of business or gal. Yeah, we still require the annual report, but they're not, you know, as long as you're documenting everything, it's usually not a, not an issue. And, you know, you mentioned that, but so many people who come in and they go to talking about their property tax and having to go do a, uh, go down to the appraisal district and, and argue with them over their, their tax appraisals or protested, I guess you call it. Yeah, protested. They always mention taking pictures in there, so. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I do with mine, and I tell you, the appraisal district, I've given it to, they love it, and I do it with everything. I call it like a photo point map, you know, and you go out, like, give them a little map with photo points of it and those photo points you can see where that map and then you have a an accompanying pages of photos there say okay here's photo point one and this is a picture of this area facing north here's a picture of this area facing south so you planted native grass or a food plot there you can show it something like that goes a long ways man i mean it really does it shows that you're doing something shows that you're actively managing for a sustainable migrating wintering population of native animals that's what you're trying to prove and that's all they're wanting they're wanting to make sure that you're doing what you say and what you're supposed to be doing by law so out of those management practices uh they can be broke down into you know there's seven of them the first one's habitat management then there's and we've, we've done a lot of talking on that particular topic. Yeah, we've topic. been talking about habitat management with everything we do. Yeah, shredding, burning. Disking, yeah. Disking. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, All that would fall. And it could also be some of them providing supplemental foods. That's a category. So out of the seven, you got habitat management, erosion management, predator management, provide supplemental water, provide supplemental food, provide supplemental shelter, and then conduct a census, which we talked part of that was a browse survey on one of them. So that's your seven. As, so and, and as long as you do three of them each year. Per year. Out of each that year seven, you have to do three out of the seven. Per year, yeah. Then you qualify, and all you do is document. Right now, every CAD's wanting to do annual reports like you have to turn in the annual report, but they're overloaded too, y'all. The CADs are overloaded. They're getting more and more wildlife appraisal. I think people are going to wildlife exponentially. And so, you know, there's only limited resources and limited manpower. So I know some counties have gone or starting to, to still do the annual report because sometimes landowners just don't want a county official or a government official, state, local, fed, whatever on their property. Some of them are going to like, look, if you don't want to do your annual reports, and I don't think Milam County is like this, but Washington County, I know is like this. They're like, I don't want to do my annual reports and neither does the county have time to deal with it. They're like, okay, well, we'll just come do a site visit once every three years. Do a site visit on your property. It takes 10, 15 minutes. Drive me around. Show me your three practices that you did out of the seven and we're good. And to be directly honest, the appraisal district's coming out to do an appraisal quite often anyway. So they're it, out there every January looking anyway. They're driving around the county yeah, looking at your so, property. So it's not really like it's uh, anybody being too nosy as more. I no. Mean, what they're already doing. And unless, you know, you're like me, so much of my job is on a computer. So doing an annual report, I mean, so much of my job is a report and maps anyway. That's just what I do for a living. You know, it's not a big deal for me to do one. But if I was out there, you know, a producer that hates emailing and hates doing that kind of stuff, well, yeah, I can see an annual report would be a real pain. It would be a lot easier. Yeah, meet me out there Monday morning. To be honest, I would rather do that. But you better hope you have been checking all your boxes in <laughs> well, the just, meantime. Cause, they're I not mean, just going to show up and knock you on You got a door. new water trough sitting yeah. out there in the middle of the place to meet your water. And yeah, you like, cut them. How long has that been? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, you always hear those appraisers, those chief appraisers say, go out there and check it for cattle. And they all, the 
cows all have sailborn tags <laughs> brand new on, on them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah, so so you better be taking care because because I know that I would be this way. I'd be like, okay, I no longer have to do that yearly report, and then all of a sudden I'd look down at my watch, and it's three years later, and I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. I mean, I better go out there and you know show that 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 three years ago I did something. Yeah. And I don't think you know, that's like I said, they can't just come on your property. You know, they're gonna call. You got to choose this option. Yeah. Yeah, and you choose that option. So and most time they're gonna call you. Yeah. So, hey, what's a good time? Uh, yes, together? sir. Six months from now, if that's okay. <laughs> 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 sir, what's a good day to come out there and meet you? Uh, uh, let's see. What's today? Maybe next year? <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that probably, you know, that's that. like you better stay on top it's of it if you choose. something to think about. Because yes. I would definitely be that guy. Yeah. But that, you know what? If you're, if you're managing for deer, most people are already doing probably all these seven practices anyway. Really, you are. If you're a big deer hunter, you're already doing You're probably doing it. But are quail, you keeping record of that's it? That's the thing. Yes. Are you keeping record of it? But one good thing is you can always drive to somebody and show them your supplemental feeding station. Because supplemental feeding is one of them. And don't, like, there's details of all these things. But as long as you, corn doesn't work, supplemental, you can't. Oh, that's not considered a supplemental. No, because it's really not. That's more of a bait. Supplemental feeding is to provide the nutrition that's adequate. So in Good general, to know. in general, supplemental feed. If you're going to do that as a mark off the box, and you want to use pelleted feed, it has to be at least 16% crude protein. No kidding. Mm-hmm. If but you can get supplemental feed by planting a food plot or oats, but you can't have a corn feeder out there and just feed corn and check the box for supplemental feed that way. So keep your receipts from when you buy the feed. Yes, that and then and you know depending on your goals, this is real. This is where it gets real back important to wildlife management plan. Your wildlife management plan outlines and details your goals and your goals are specific to your passion as a landowner what you want to be a lot of people don't could care less about a white-tailed deer some of them would much rather manage butterflies or manage you know neotropical songbirds absolutely I, don't I love birds and butterflies too but some people don't care anything about the birds and butterflies and they just want deer so on your goals it needs to be very specific well, and you, it has to be something that's in your area too. Like, yes. I mean, you can't be, no. you can't have ten acres in the middle of a of a field that somebody just subdivided for yeah. housing, it's like, and I'm you're going to manage deer. it for deer. Yes, it's got to, yeah, it's got to be like that's not going to work. Too. Like, if you only got five acres, you can't say, "Well, I'm going to manage for a sustainable breeding population of deer." You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can put them kind of on your lip. That's not your primary goal. You better look at other other options. But whatever I'm saying, make it real specific because. If you're managing for winter birds or birds period habitat, you can do census doing winter bird surveys, you know, counting the amounts of birds every day at your bird feeder and which species, you know, keeping it logged. That's stuff that a lot of bird watchers do anyway. And that stuff will help for your that, that, that box. So number one, you're providing supplemental food and you're doing a census. That's two of them right there. That most landowners do anyway. That they have a bird feed. That sounds very relaxing. I want to go put all my ag land in the in the wildlife right now and go count birds every day. Well, that just sounds so relaxing. Early in the morning, man, have a bird feeder outside your window, man, and drink coffee and watch them. You'd be surprised what will come in. You know? Sounds very enjoyable. Uh, I enjoy so, it. Let, let's elaborate on this, Chancy, before we get too scattered out here. Yeah. Uh, habitat. 
Yes, habitat are, management. So, what are some like all we talked? We already beat it into we beat yeah. it into the ground already uh, before. Just some bullet points of habitat management. So you got have here's some things. The, okay, so if you're going to check your box off on your on your wildlife management evaluation, habitat management. Th- these are things you could do and record that that will get you a check in the box for habitat management. Yeah, grazing management, prescribed burning, range enhancement. That means you plant going, grasses. You plant grasses, recent interseeding. You know, uh, brush management, forest management riparian management improve riparian is just a, a fancy word for stream y'all wetland improvements if you got wetlands on your property can you improve them uh habitat protection for species of concern if you got threatened endangered species or now in texas another thing is called sgcn species these are called species of greatest conservation need just about everybody has some of these on their property you know you start trying to provide habitat for them bam check off your list wildlife restoration you know not a whole lot of people have stuff like that that would be like if you're reintroducing something but some properties do you know like if you got houston toads or you're working with state i mean that's a check off the box for habitat management and you know like one way that people i have a neighbor who does this actually he's got string draped up on poles where you oh, know, and then he, he feeds the birds, and the birds land on the string, and then they poop out seeds and stuff. And what grows? Well, all the hackberry trees and the different things that these birds have been eating. Uh, so I guess that's one way to show that you've been working on your habitat. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a check in the box for yeah, that. Yeah, and that could also be. I mean, like I said, some of these there's overlap, y'all, between like providing supplemental cover and habitat management you know like you can provide supplemental cover by letting your fence line boundaries grow up especially if you're managing for cottontail rabbits you know oh you could even manage for cottontail rabbits oh uh, native native rain native animals as long as it's a native you just need a management plan for, for that. that animal you know so what i like to do especially like these areas you native you manage for the species of native range that are there when you ground squirrels cottontail rabbits all your neotropical songbirds that come through twice a year all your winter migratory birds you know your winter bird dick sissels are a big deal you know in our neck of the woods right now dick sissels are just man they're just getting hammered right now it's all what are they all of our grassland well you know in the summertime those little birds that you always see out in the blackland prairie they're on power lines they're on blood weeds they look like little field larks yes it's called a dick, dick sissel they got a yellow breast they migrate big time migratory birds and I think they're coming from Chile and Argentina, somewhere down in South America, you know, where they're getting, they're kind of like blackbirds down there. So the farmers down there cuss them and try to kill them all. But then up here, they're trying to nest. And what's happening to them? All of our prairie is getting converted to solar panels and getting converted to houses and everything else. And even though we've got cropland, most of those dick thistles are all breeding on you know, our cropland and our fields and our road, and they're just doing really bad. All of our grassland songbirds, loggerhead shrikes, what we call butcher birds, you know, they're just not doing well at all. Field larks, stuff like that. Um, so there's so many needs for this wildlife valuation. I mean, there's so many so like, things that you can do to make a difference. There really is, especially like for our birds, you know, stuff that migrates. It's critical, man. I mean, those little little areas i mean I, I saw i was looking this morning when it got or not this morning when it got really cold and nasty you know i'd left to stand a native edge little blue stem and everything and uh there's a bunch of purple top tridents that had come up there and that purple top trident i never cut it down or shredded i just left it for decadent for cover for insects and birds and also a food source and i was watching it was white-throated sparrows they were crawl. i'd never seen them do it before they were crawling up the stalk of that purple top trident and eating the seeds off of that tridents from it you know and i never watched them forage like that. What a neat little ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, me being bird guy, I, I enjoyed watching. I was like, well, look at right there. That's kind of critical because you think about these little sparrows are just like souped up magnum little micro 
chickens, you know. They got to get on the ground and scratch around and find tiny seeds or, you know, from, from native grasses and stuff. So Yeah, and so as you can imagine, uh, the tax appraisers don't give Chancey too many questions on his wildlife <laughs> management plan because he sounds like he's got it figured out out there. Uh, you, you know, we had that discussion a while ago even about, like, pesticide applicator licenses, which are becoming so important right now. I'm not saying I know everything by any means, but, I mean, I went, I've taken every class you could think of. I could draw the active molecule and half of the restricted chemicals that you could buy, but yet I can't go buy it without a without a, with, without a uh, ap- without a chemical applicator's license yeah. and i gotta go get ceus and listen to people who were trained by the same people i was trained by tell me what i already know in order to get a check in that box so yeah no so uh, uh you know you got guys like chancy over here who, who know the ins and the outs of all of this that you need for wildlife and once again contact him at nativetexaswildlife.com and he could help you with all this stuff so that, that's a little bit about habitat but yeah. so there's other these, these other checks in the boxes that we got to yeah. cover and erosion would be the next one erosion management erosion management yeah Yeah, Yeah. not erosion well a lot of people say erosion control Uh you know predator control well you know it depends on what you like to hear better you know erosion management erosion control predator control predator management you know it's just a just a yeah i feel good what's like you know everybody says i harvested a deer why don't you just say i killed it you know i mean (laughs) because in actuality there's not much different it just sounds a lot better (laughs) yeah i guess so harvest you harvest vegetables you know kind of way i see so we're going to do erosion management yeah so one of those be pond construction so you got a wash go you can build a pond you know and the neat thing about those like big ones like pond construction that lasts that's a check in the box for 10 years and you know chance if you think about it you better be thinking twice as you're listening to this if you have five acres and you're going to put it into wildlife because three out of these seven boxes ain't hard on 100 acres Mm. but three out of these seven is pretty dang tough on five acres absolutely that's why you really need to think about your management plan and what your goals are and what species you're going to manage yeah maybe typically a small acreage means a small species yes yeah Absolutely, or especially grassland songbirds. In our area, grassland songbirds are important, really big. Lots of people, one of the things is supplemental shelter. Bird boxes, bat boxes, duck boxes, things like that you can do. But back to erosion, pond construction or gully shape. If you've only got six, seven acres and you got a gully on half of it and you go to try to do something, all of a sudden you, you don't have much land anymore. That's you know? right. It doesn't take long in order for a little washed crack to become a pretty large ditch. Yes, sir. Uh, other some management that would fall under erosion would be stream sign pond and wetland revegetation. You know, so if you've got ponds that are just not vegetated very well, you could plant some native grass or what are some to hold the dirt in place on the, the dirt on the dams and the yes, establishing native plants. You know, a lot of people um, and it's kind of thing like it could fall under habitat management, but. If your creek is erosion really badly, badly, and you've already got a check in the box for habitat management, you could actually put riparian buffers, which provides habitat, could be a check in the box there, but it also prevents erosion. So that could be, a, you know, by, by or just fencing your cattle out of creeks, you know. That would be considered erosion control. It, well, but that's not wildlife anymore either. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, if you're managing for wildlife and your pl- property is big enough, in order to really manage for wildlife really good you've got a lot of native range it needs to be grazed absolutely that would go right with shredding and burning and all that yes and if you're going to use cattle to do it well you know a good idea would just be keep them out of the riparian areas you know especially in the winter time or something like that have some type of goal in your some type of stuff in your management plan that you can show that you're doing dike and levy construction or management water diversion you know terraces things like that people are trying to stop erosion you know us farmers in the blackland prairie we've dealt with it all, all for years you know 
Absolutely. With the terraces. Yes, and so all that all that counts towards a check in the box for your erosion management. Yes. And then uh, I guess while we're on that topic, though, that's pretty close to supplemental water. You know, you mentioned pond yeah. construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so depending on, I guess, the type of water that your wildlife is that you're managing for or whatever, you know, their requirements are for this area, like if it's ducks. Yes. I mean, that's going to be a total different supplemental water requirement than if you're managing for Lizards, yeah. Or or lizards or something like Uh that. It's uh, totally different. Sure. So, I mean, you could provide supplemental water. One form would be making marshes or wetlands, either developing them or restoring them. So, if you've got some bad areas or a little depression that's just been in pasture, you could actually dig it out a little bit more, restore it, plant some cattails, make a little small wetland. You know, that'd be one good thing for ducks, you know. Uh, Just managing, like we discussed in one of the topics, I think, limiting factors where we managed our wildlife trawls and stuff like that, just Having a wildlife, a wildlife like a cattle watering trough that you put dirt up to or rocks up to it, so that a a mammal can get or a small mammal or a small reptile can get in there and get a drink of water, or if a squirrel or a frog falls in, it can hop on something and get out of there without drowning. Main, All that counts. Maintaining that stuff counts, or just like we said, letting your windmill or water trough just run over a little bit to create a little wetland. Just maintain that every year. And that counts. Something as simple as that. You know, or like I don't have one in my property, but before I die, I want a wild a wildlife watering feature in my yard. Like I like. I bet birds. that's fun to sit by and watch. I've got buddies that put them on the ranches in South Texas, you know, and it is unbelievable to sit there and just watch the birds that come to that little. Well, world. especially as water is so scarce in mm-hmm. an area where water is scarce, you might not get quite the stuff here that you get down there. And- You'd be surprised, you know. I have perennial creek on you know my property, and it's you know, but I. I can put water out there in the bird bath, and they use the daylights out of it. And I'm like, why don't you just go to the creek? You Isn't know? that but something? I don't know. I guess it's the way. To, I mean, I've got a dog that's lazy, and that poor old girl. I got to keep water out for her, but all she's got to do is walk a hundred yards. But she, she could get a drink out of the creek. She, yeah, she could. But I tell you, if you fill her water bucket, she'll run over there like she hadn't had water in years and just drink, 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 drink. <laughs> drink you know? So, but you know, you talk about the supplemental water, Jason. You've already mentioned building a pond in two of these already. That's a 10-year check in the box. Yes, yeah. When you build a pond, yeah. You Which can. it should be. That's major. Yeah, that's a major. You don't have to do that one again for 10 years. For 10 know? years, yeah. you get it. There's other things here, too, that, that, that work for that 10-year check in the box, too. And like building a levee or yeah, things for the erosion like control Usually, kind of if stuff. you're moving large dirt, y'all, something like that usually lasts for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, and then you may, but of course, by the time 10 years have rolled by, if it's a levee or something, it's probably going to be time to reshape it or something like that. It, that. it doesn't take long for that to wear out. Yeah, I mean, so then you're just maintaining. So like I said, a lot of this stuff landowners are doing on their property anyway, you know, and so you just tweak it for your wildlife, how, how it works. Mm-hmm. And so is there anything else on that providing supplemental water? You know, I mean, you could put guzzlers out there. A lot of people put, you know, build wildlife guzzlers, which are, you know, basically you're just catching like off your roof, you know, and put a guzzler to water. You know, there's all kinds of different ways to provide supplemental water for wildlife in a very minimal, minimal cost, you know, because what you want to do is you want water there ground level for critters. And, you know, a lot of people will build guzzlers and stuff like that and do that, that they can pipe off of existing structures to, to catch. Makes sense there. Yeah. And so that brings it's us. Hard to, I guess, dig a well. You know, that's probably a 10-year one, too. You dig a well to provide access to a 
area of your property that doesn't have water. Yeah, it benefits you in lots of ways. Sure does. And then you have things like uh, predator management. So this is going to look different depending on what you're managing for, too. Yes. And from what y'all need to understand, too, predator management, y'all, it's mostly uh, native-type stuff other than, like, fire ants, you know. A lot of people want to put feral hogs or exotics, you know, which they are. They are a predator, no doubt about it, hogs are. But they technically are an exotic species, too. So controlling them, a lot of them, you know, it falls underneath your habitat management. And again, I don't know if we mentioned it or not, but all of these things have to be native to your area that you're managing for. It can't be any exotic or any kind of wildlife like that that you're writing your plan for. for. No, it can't be. This has to be a species that native native to your area uh, for you to get this wildlife exemption. You, You can't. You can't have it for, like Chancy said, wild hogs. You can't have a wildlife yeah, management for, management for, for wild, wild hogs because they're not native. Yes, yes. Uh, and so uh, so pre- it has to be a predator. So it's another check in the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A predator management uh, or predator control yeah, say white for whatever deer. it is. that, that it, I guess it could be cats if it's your birds, huh? Absolutely. Like feral cats? Feral, or? Yeah. Um, well, it's mostly native. Feral cats are probably considered an exotic animal that could go. I, there's some gray well, even areas. the predators have to be natural predators, well, like for like the native most predators. Part, when we think of other than fire ants, like I said, there's some gray areas in there. But most time when you think of predator control, white-tailed deer guy, you're thinking about coyotes. You know, if you're a quail turkey guy, you're thinking about skunks and possums and coons. You know, nest predators. Nest predators are real, which hogs are definitely one of them, too. Hogs are one of those things you need to be controlling them every month, guys. You could, you just, yeah. I mean, they're yeah. they're an erosion. That's erosion control. <laughs> yeah. If you kill a hog, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's that's habitat control. control. I mean, you're that's getting, exotic species control. You're, yeah. you're going to check in a box for lots of things there. <laughs> that's much, as, as many different ways they affect an ecosystem. Yeah. I don't think that you can, like, literally y'all get that but you really can like i actually do keep track of how many hogs i trap and kill every year and how many of them are sows and how many of them are are boars and i turn that in every year as part of your management that's part like look you know last year i did i forget what it was a bunch of them last year i can't remember uh but this year was only 30 you know i only got 30 this year but uh, i keep track of everyone and that's just turn in but another thing out of predator control so like we said nest predators are big if birds are on if birds are in your goals you can think about texas rat snake yeah they could definitely be yeah absolutely i mean i could see how that that could definitely be so long as it says it fits in your goals in your wildlife management plan they kind of have to sink uh fire ant control that's a big one you know God knows it's hard to kill fire ants now, but there's methods to go do broadcast, you know, applications on fields. Yeah, there's different there's different ant baits you could put out there. Yeah, brown headed cowbird control, y'all. And if you don't know brown headed cowbirds, they're the little black birds that you see like crazy all with the cattle that have the little brown heads. They're nest parasites. They get in songbird nests and they lay their egg in there, and uh, and then the songbird raises their babies. Yeah, and generally the cowbirds it hatches two or three days before the thing. So it usually gets bigger and outgrows them and pushes the other ones out. And they're just a mess. They really are. You can manage and trap them. I think per county, there's like a specific number you need to kill uh, every year to qualify. So like we talk about minimum requirements for acreage, there's also some minimum requirements for some of these, like how many you need to kill. Or if you're going to put up nest boxes for shelter, how many nest boxes to put out. So depending on your county and your appraisal district, you know, and the appraisal review board, that might change, tweak the percentages from year to year or from county to county, but the practices don't. 
You know, that's a neat story about that little species. Oh, man, they're amazing. They really are. And you know what's crazy about, like, there's a bunch of studies that says, uh, you know, the closer, the more edge you have. So, like, if you imagine for a deer and the closer you are with wood lines, you have more brown-headed cowbirds. And, like, I've talked. Are they common? What's that? Oh, they, in the springtime, crazy common. They're everywhere. I can't tell you how many. I shoot every spring. Do they They're even have their own nest or not? No, they rob them. They don't have a nest at all. No. They lay their you. eggs in another nest, and then yes. these the birds who nest that was, they basically mm-hmm. sit on the eggs and, yes, and they, raise they them up. They're what's called a nest parasite. They're really amazing to, to think about. But I tell you, they're a sorry little bird because I found one one time in a white-eyed vireo's nest. And, um, well, I don't know. It might have been a bell's. Uh, you found bell's. the little chicken there? The no, little... I found the cowbird egg. You can uh, tell it's a very different egg, very shaped, bigger and everything. And I took that. It had, like, the vireo nest in there. This was in South Texas, y'all. And I saw the cowbird egg, and I was like, man. So I just, you know, trying to think I was helping. I took the egg, and I threw it away. Well, those female cowbirds checked because the next day I went back to look. She had destroyed that nest to make that bird build another one. You were joking, man. No, destroyed the nest and killed all the – and then hence destroyed the eggs, too. Those those birds are <laughs> Well, they brutal, say histo- historically they thought was because, you know, they followed the bison – so they never had time to build a nest because they were always, oh, they were always the moving. Move. Yeah, so that's kind of the thing. And it wasn't a problem historically because they were always finding the bison. But now we've got cattle that never leave. And now we've got these songbirds coming in, these grassland songbirds. Not only is their habitat getting taken from them, a lot of the babies that they're trying to raise are getting killed or outcompeted by brown-headed cowbirds. They just grow faster and outcompete those yeah. little, little young birds. Yeah, I mean, you can Google search brown-headed cowbird. Texas Parks and Wildlife has a tremendous amount of information about them. And it's just interesting, and it's something that's you wouldn't think. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's it's a it's amazing. Like I don't know exactly, y'all. So don't quote me on. But something like taking out one female cowbird saves you like twenty five songbirds. Wow, something like that. It's significant. It really is. What kind of impact that they have on our little native. Uh, migratory songbirds so that's a predator that you could be managing in order to get your check in the box yes. if you're managing for songbirds. especially if you've got cattle too you know um if you got cattle that you why do they follow the bison and the cattle they because they're usually they're the they're, they're walking beside you the insects the that the cows insects, as yeah. the cows graze they stir the the mm-hmm. bugs up and these birds sit there and catch the yeah. grasshoppers and yeah. different things that the cattle are they're not up. cattle egrets not the white ones y'all they're protected you know and so are brown-headed cowbirds too. oh they're to protected some, too to some every bird in texas that's native is protected so how would you extent. even manage that predator well it, you can if they're if they're these species like grackle and starling control starlings are technically n- not native but grackles are you know but you know depending they can be big ones so depending the state has the migratory bird treaty act which is one you know that protects everything but certain species or what's considered nuisances, like crows, you know. But technically, you can't just go out there and kill a crow because you just don't like crows. That's against the law because they're protected, you know. Maybe not under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but they're protected. But, uh, you know, you ask anybody, well, you can kill them if they're fixing to depredate. And if you know crows and you're a pecan farmer, it's always fixing to depredate. That's true. So, so. Yes, that's the you hear the crow guns going off all the time, you know, yeah. in the fall whenever the pecans are starting to, mm-hmm. to take shape and stuff going off to scare all the crows away. Yeah. Uh, it that's like a, a little off topic, y'all. Sounds like a little war zone out where we live out there with the, in the pecan fields. Yeah. But uh, uh, so, so what are some other examples of this predator management? 
Those are the big ones I can think of, you know, that most other ones, like on the checkbox, I think it's those right there. Predator control, the main ones, the coons, set your DPs out there. Your DP traps, y'all, like we talked about, around your supplemental feeder. You just knocked off two of your list right there. You just did predator control and supplemental feed. Fire ant control is a big one just because they're a problem for so many things. Brown-headed cowbird, those are the main ones. But I guess other ones could be species-specific. But those are the main ones that they're looking at. And so when you fill this form out and you check the box for predator management, you have to write a paragraph as to what you did? Yes, or, and that's why it's good to have pictures and species and sexes. You know, what you did. Like I said, they make big traps for caterpillar. That, it's a, called a cowbird trap. Or you can even build smaller cowbird traps. But like I said, some people will just shoot them, you know, at bird feeders because they'll go to bird feeders too. But I think it's one of those things you need to be showing that you're making a difference or trying to make a difference for your management plan. Makes sense. And so I guess the last one of our seven practices that you could uh, do, we mentioned it earlier, is supplemental feeding. Yeah, supplemental feeding. Not hard for birds. I no. mean, uh, you know, bird. You, a lot of people feed different bird seeds or or plant. This is where you could plant your sunflowers or food plant plots. food plots for your uh, for any any of them. Basically, managed tame pasture. You know that you like know, go and intercede. You know, coastal field with oats in the fall. You know that's that's something rye. That's good for deer. Rye. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And and are providing the pelleted feed, but it's got to be sixteen percent. That, that's hard for me to believe. It has to be 16%, and then you have to uh, keep your receipts to show that you did that because there's not going to be many other ways that you could prove that you no, did that. No, there really isn't. There sure isn't. You know, or like a lot of people buy that stuff in bulk, you know, or whatever. You, I don't know if y'all, like y'all's feed store, if y'all keep up with people that buy it that way, you know. But, yeah, keep your receipts the main thing. <laughs> I probably shouldn't tell this story, but we'll have people come in every once in a while, and they'll be like, hey, old Steve told me to get a copy of his receipt from his deer feed because I need that for my wildlife, man. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. No. <laughs> so, but so. I guess so. That, but real quick, what there's two left: uh, shelter and census. Right, providing shelter. Did we already do all that? No. So shelter would be one I'm moving off from. Uh, oh no, we did not talk about yeah. that one. Shelter. That's nest boxes, y'all. You know, bluebirds are a big deal. Carolina chickadee, any of your cavity nesting birds, tit mice, things like that. It could be leaving like a brush pile out. Brush Instead pies. of burning yeah. a brush pile right away, yeah, good hide. place for different things to hide. Yes, think about for cottontail rabbits, you know, things like that. Uh, managing hay meadow, pasture crop, half-cutting trees, y'all. So half-cutting means basically say you got maybe a lot of cedar trees out there. Or not, or not cedar. Well, it could be cedar, but most of the time we're not talking about cedar. We're talking about like mesquite or something like that. You go in there and you cut the top half off of them. Not all the way through, but then just let it fall on the ground where it's still got cambium tissue oh, attached. Yes. So it falls on the ground and continues to grow. You just create a cover for small mammals just like that and cover for birds to get in. Birds love brush piles and things like that. That's yeah. one way. Establishing wooden plants and shrubs like you talked about, do the fence line. You know, you want to let the birds plant your stuff, you know, uh, or just go buy some stuff or hand dig it on your property and transplant them. Move them where you want them. And I guess there's houses you could buy possibly for some of these migrating birds and different things sure, too, or does this have to boxes. be natural? No, you could buy houses, bat boxes, duck boxes. You know, a lot of people make uh, bluebird boxes. You know, uh, owl boxes, screech owl boxes. Why are they different, Chancy? Why can't why why how is there different nesting boxes for all these different birds? Well, the biology of the species for one. How big is the bird? You know, so like your bluebird boxes. A lot of times you get Carolina chickadees in there, and you get 
tit mice, I guess, could theoretically use it. But the holes are a certain size. You want to keep that hole. So a bluebird, technically, only something that big can get in there. You know, and then a lot of times you have predator guards on your bird box. But then, you know, think of your screech owls. You know, there's specific holes that they like. Sometimes they like their hole to be on the east side or the west side. Or A lot of these animals are very specific in the homes that they choose. And uh, bats, you know, they have a specific box, you know. And you know, I, I'm, wood ducks have a specific box, and it's cool, like in our area, because we have two different kinds of wood ducks here. We have the wood ducks that migrate, and then we have the wood ducks that stay here year round. So if you got wood ducks on your property, I mean, I do it on mine. Put some wood duck boxes out, because they're just cool, you know. Wood ducks are cool, and if you can get them to breed on your property and stay, that, that's great. Uh, you can also develop natural cavities and snags. So that's what. Say you got a bunch of bottom land. Or just a bunch of woodland area, you can go in there and do what's called a squirt, a hack squirt method, you know, or just girdle some trees, create some snags. Not on your guest best beautiful trees, but on trees you don't care too much about. Kill them, let them stand, because that provides excellent habitat. Woodpeckers will eventually go in there, excavate holes, you know, and then those other birds, like your cavity nesters, are going to go in there and utilize them. Let that stag maintain it. Keep it standing as long as you can. You know, that's another way to provide supplemental shelter. Huh, that, that's pretty interesting, Yeah, and too. as long as you maintain like five snags per acre, implement and maintain five per acre, check off the box. I'll be damned. Which, that's an easy one to do. You know, it really is. And very, you can do that in 30 minutes. You know, go, especially with the hack and squirt method, you can create them real fast. What know? do you mean by hack and squirt? Hack and squirt is like a method that you use in the eastern United States forest. Like you use a little hatchet and you go around about breast height of a tree. And like I said, not, not on your good trees, kind of your shade tolerant stuff, you know, or and, fast uh, growing, soft Fast growing, trees, yeah, maybe. something that's going to, you know, the birds are going to get after it. If you got a bunch of them, you know, the bigger is kind of the better from a habitat standpoint for cavity nesters. And you can just, uh, number one, you could girdle it with a chainsaw or a knife. It's going to take a while to die with a hack and squirt. You basically take a hatchet and you just cut into it just a little bit. Depending on how big a tree, you might have to do it one to three times. And then you take a, a spray mixture. I forget what the mixture of it, like garlon with water and spray down in there, you know, and it, and it will eventually kill it. Kind of like a remedy kind of yeah, chemical garland, or something. Yeah, it's the same triclopyr. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a remedy base. Some people call it garland. I think it's the surfactant that's really different. Okay. I'm not positive on that, but I know garland is one of them they use, and there's some other chemicals, but I think they're all triclopyr based. And uh, so that, that'll get you a check in the box. Yeah, and like I said, and I think as far as specific to cover, I think there are some that Parks and Wildlife did put out for the Post Oak Savannah and Blackland Prairie specifically for cover requirements. Like these things right here. Minimum. So, like, in this, I'm not saying every county it does it, but this is Parks and Wildlife's recommendation. So, say you got nest box out there for eastern bluebird, tufted titmouse, uh, wrens, the Buick's wren, and the Carolina chickadee. Uh, and they won't, they should be one nest box per three acres of suitable habitat. So, oh, so there's, be, there's, there's regulations on this. On something, especially with nest boxes, because that's something, you know, a lot of people will do. And then they, because if you got nest boxes out there, you need to be maintaining them. You need to make sure they got the wasp nest out on them before the nesting season. You need, and technically, a lot of people will do nest boxes and census at the same time and get two boxes off because you can go in there and, document who's using your nest box which species is using how many eggs they had and how many clutches they had per year that's vital very important information to non-game biologists and you know mentioning that's that that's a census right there so you just mentioning that's things. our last part 
that, oh, yeah. That's our last check in the box of census, right? Yeah, census would be our last check in the box, yeah, out yeah. of the seven. And so we've already mentioned this, too, with the browse surveys and, and different ways Chancey's mentioned before about doing counts on your deer and different things. But now he's mentioning that, too, where you could do egg counts for these birds. Or, yeah, or like winter bird surveys or breeding birds, uh, breeding bird surveys which is like um, in the springtime when the birds start breeding and start calling you know go out there and listen do what's called point counts you know and there's lots of ways to get census you know so though we just named three of them but then if you're a deer guy spotlight counts and most time they want a minimum of three spotlight you take the average of your three yeah or like for the minimum like you can't just do one it either or if you do do one it has to be 15 miles long that's a big place oh that's wow a big place. 15 miles yeah but most everybody that does spotlight counts you need three of them anyway because sometimes you have a bad night sometimes you have a good night absolutely so if you got a small place but it's still big enough for deer just do three of them you know so your spotlight lines three four miles you know do three of them something like that that'll qualify turn it in most time if you're on mldp permits for deer you're already doing something like that you've already got that information like i said if you're already actively managing you're probably already doing most of these harvest data collection and record keeper that's one of them harvest uh record keeping like that's collecting age weight and ant- antler data from your deer herd age weight and antler data. that'll tell you if you're overpopulated or not yeah because generally uh age weight and antler data and uh if you got weak health, animals they're probably too much competition yeah out there. if they were lactating remember when we talked about nutrition lactation is a key indicator of herd health if you're harvesting a lot of does in the fall and they're not lactating or didn't have milk that means they didn't have a fall or something happened to it and so phones having healthy phones mean your mama should be lactating so you know that's that that's a key indicator of your herd health, and and how many animals you have out there. Yeah, because generally, nutrition herd health goes down with habitat decreases. So if habitat goes down, you know quality of habitat goes down. Generally, herd health follows it. And like I said, we always talk about carrying capacity, but you're really never at carrying capacity. You're either above it or below it. You're either slightly above it or slightly below it. You know, and that's the balance. We're just back and forth, back and forth, trying to keep it within that carrying capacity that can change from year to year kind of sounds like my blood sugar <laughs> yeah i got diabetes it's always either too low or too high it's tough to keep it right there in the yeah. right spot yeah it really yeah. is the yeah. same same the thing same thing what, yeah same, same thing, thing. What we do. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, really yeah. Yeah. so what's another way change the uh, aerial counts like yeah if you're people probably doing that with their drones now and all are well it's main thing they're talking about like uh if you're in south texas you know with a, with a helicopter counting deer with a helicopter but you're in west texas you know they'll do it with fixed wing aircraft or something census monitoring endangered species threatened wildlife you know people that had threatened species could do you know specific like i said these are all things just that you could use but most of the time you know people are using point counts for birds or winter bird surveys or doing spotlight counts or or camera counts for deer camera counts work as well as long as you follow the protocol to to do it and so let's see here that brings us up to pretty much the summer okay so once again in order for you to turn your when you turn your report in every year you got to have three of those seven boxes that we just talked about checked yes yeah but Uh, to get to there just to summarize everything you got to be doing those like bradley just said at least three out of seven but to get to there to go to wildlife the property must have been qualified as 1d1 open space ag use land the year prior to changing the wildlife management. So, like we talked about, if you had it, if you have it, don't lose it. Always keep it. Also, the land must be used to support a sustaining, breeding, migrating, or wintering population of native wild animals. Native. They got to be native. 
you've got to uh, submit to the appraisal district between January 1st and April 30th, you know, of that year that you want to change. And likewise, if you want to change back, same time frame. Uh, another thing, summarize up, you got to have a wildlife management plan. You got to have that one. It's best to submit that management plan the same time you submit for the land use change. And then also, of course, if the property, remember, if the property has been reduced in size since the previous tax year, there is a minimum track size requirements that must be met to qualify for wildlife. And that pretty much sums it up. Yeah, that pretty much, that's the big topics. And like I said, y'all, we could spend, and there's a lot of tax code and tax documents, and I'm no lawyer or property tax consultant, but uh, a lot of that stuff I got off of Dr. Kathy. Kudos to Dr. Kathy, my old boss again. I think he put a, a publication out together, him and some other guys, on property tax stuff. So a lot of that stuff, y'all, I'm telling you, is coming from A&M and also just from my, my experience when I used to write them and do them all the time with Parks and Wildlife. And once again, he can sure help you write those plans and keep up with what you're supposed to be doing in this ever-changing world of of tax appraisals and things that's going on. <laughs> yes. But uh, I guess that sums up this week, Chancey. Yes, that covers uh – yeah, wildlife, the brushing on wildlife appraisal for sure. So You know, and I hope you join us next week. We'll do a little discussion next week about uh, different hay grazer varieties and stuff that are coming out right now and getting time to book that. Almost time to plant that if it yeah, warms up and sure dries is. up here a little bit. So we'll discuss a little bit about that next week. But I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And, and I guess uh, me and Chansey will talk to you all next week. Y'all have a great week, y'all.